As we can tell just by looking at ourselves, some things have changed since 1988. But in so many ways, we are still the same people. Here is another story of one of us, the humans of 88. My name is Matt Thomas. I graduated from Carleton and uh, have been in London for most of my adult life, married and uh, have two children. I have a Carl in the family. Our younger son, Alex, is graduating, or at least we hope. We've booked the hotel and uh, we've booked the flight. I, I have to say that he looks more likely to graduate in June than certainly I looked to my parents. He's found over the four years, I think, many of the same things that, you know, that all of us oftentimes I think reminisce about is, you know, he's felt challenged, he's felt humbled, he's felt exposed to things that he never expected or never under understood. And sometimes he's armed with new ideas and he's he's like not quite sure how, what to do with them. So he over deploys and sometimes he under understands just like we all do. It's like part of being young and encountering things for the first time. And then we have an older son. He's 24 and he's a professional soccer player. He was soccer player here in the UK. He was also playing a lot of cricket. I am a closet cricket convert. I love cricket. It's 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 probably the irony of ironies, again, that a kid from the Midwest Cardinals fan would, would argue that cricket over five days could actually be engaging. It's incredibly suspense. But our, our children were involved both in cricket and in soccer, extensively football, I guess, here. When I think back about my Carlton years, you know, I am aware of how little I thought about the future. I had a sense, maybe even not consciously, that things would sort of work out there would be decisions that I would be taking that would lead to other decisions. And as life kind of unfolded, I felt like I was well prepared for the uncertainty that followed. The uncertainty, I mean, actually going back to our graduation theme, I mean, the un uncertainty that I felt like I em embraced. For those that knew me well or knew me somewhat, and I say this with some pride, the worst Russian language student in the history of Carleton College. I came into Carleton excited about the prospect of studying Russian. I was a, a weird kid in a lot of ways, I suppose, but I was fascinated with the Soviet Union. I was fascinated with Russia. I had done absolutely nothing to develop that interest as a you know secondary school student, but I, I knew that that was something I wanted to explore. I signed up for Russian classes and took uh, a year of Russian, and my grades went from bad to worse to, to net out at the program it was. And I ultimately got my uh, language proficiency in Spanish <laughs> about three years later. So I was, uh, I was a train wreck in, in Russian. I somehow, some way managed to enjoy the experience. And I kept all my textbooks and everything. The Russian elephant in the Matt Thomas room is partially there because of Kristen, divine. Because Kristen, as a freshman at Carleton, we lived on the same floor and I was mesmerized by her stories as a high school student. So she had traveled. Now she had been to Europe. She had lived in Europe. And I thought that's fascinating, but she had been to the Soviet Union and she gave me actually, which I have something I have to this day. I have a poster and a belt buckle that she gave me freshman year at Carleton artifacts from the Soviet Union. The poster I have on my wall and the belt, bu bu belt buckle I've kept all these years, but it was kind of fuel for this interest that I had in the region. And she had been there. And I felt the same way about the region that she, you know, I've talked to her many times over the years about this, that she kind of felt. But what happened was after Carleton, I had the travel bug and I went to England for a year after graduation. 
still thinking in the back of my mind that in the long term, I'd like to get to Russia and get to the Soviet Union and, and sort of explore that. As an intermediate step, I went to London, ended up um, traveling around the continent of Europe for you know, for a couple of months, but eventually settled back in with some Carls in a, in a flat in uh, in London with Dave Lewis and Chris Jones and King Ching. I settled into the rhythms of a post-studenty, half carefree, half, oh, wow, what an exciting place the world is. Oh, I got my first taste of kind of like true, true, true independence and responsibility. And that lasted about six, eight months. But then I came back to Minneapolis, unsure what I wanted to do next, but knowing that Russia was still the next thing on my on my sort of list. The way I felt was that, okay, I've had a taste of, of sort of living overseas, doing something that was like quasi exotic. I did what you always do. If you're planning something big, you get a job at the local cub food store bagging groceries and study Russian at night. But it allowed me basically to hang out with Carlton friends. And I was studying, went, began studying Russian at night at the U. Remember vividly being excited when Gorbachev came to Minnesota. It might have been the fall of 89. It might have been the fall of 1990. Gorbachev uh, made one of the few trips ever by a, uh, you know, head of the Soviet Union to the Midwest. Uh, I remember going out and trying to see his motorcade and was just, you know, kind of mesmerized by the whole thought of, you know, this other place that in some respects seemed a bit like us and many other respects seemed so completely alien and different. And um, walking through the the Russian department at the U, I saw an advertisement for a program that would allow you to go to what was still the Soviet Union and stay with a family in what was um, then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. You could stay for two months and it was reasonably priced. It's like $1,200 or something. This was a chance to live with a Russian family and I pounced on it. And so I went over there in the spring of 1991 arrived as the Soviet Union was beginning to, you know, maybe the, the fastest stage of unraveling. It, it formally ceased to exist in the December of that year. Empty shelves, things were on ration coupon. I was set up with a, a Russian family, uh, a mother and, and her um, actually 14-year-old daughter. And I was like a space alien that had landed, you know, from wherever. So, so they helped me to settle in, to you know, understand how to how to sort of navigate life. You know, one of the things they taught me was if you want to get something that you need, you need to know how to to kind of work the system, and that includes bribing if you need something. And so that actually became essential nearly at the end, two month period. I met my wife Thalana. I had already decided that I wanted to stay. I hadn't quite worked out how to stay, and so based on the advice and the help that this woman that I'd been staying with gave me, she accompanied me to the local visa office and explained to me how to go about encouraging the, uh, the local visa official to extend my visa by another couple of months. What I found worked in the Soviet Union in those days was a bag which contained crayons, coloring books, children's t-shirts, and I think it was a Backstreet Boys cassette. <laughs> And if you want a two-month extension to your visa as an American citizen in the Soviet Union in mid-1991, that was the price. As I learned, you know, there was some, some kind of quick demographic analysis that went into that by the woman I was living with. She found out who was responsible for issuing the visa. She guessed her age, guessed what her family setup might be, assumed she might have young children, and she advised me. And then that process over the next year repeated itself every two months. And I became known to this woman as the guy with the goods from, <laughs> from the outside. 
And it was only then a year later that future wife and I finally left. And actually, it's like when I was leaving the Soviet Union, I took a train out from St. Petersburg, it had just been renamed, up to the Finnish border. But I was turned back at the border because I didn't have the right exit documents. And so I had to go back to this woman and say, well, you know, I've been trying to stay for all this time, but now could you help me get out? I don't know if she was sorry to see me go because, you know, I mean, the Backstreet Boys, I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's currency. So uh, I managed to get out. And then my future wife, Sviata, joined me in the US. And I began kind of the second stage then of my interest in Russia. So I went, I had enrolled in graduate school from Russia at Georgetown in a Russian, Russian studies program. And so I was all in, all in with all things Russian. After we didn't got married about a year and a half later, and she was able to start working. She got involved with Johns Hopkins University and was, was working on a USAID program. And we moved up to Baltimore because we had a we had a negotiation. I was still studying in Washington. She was working in Baltimore. So well, let's split the difference. And so we decided to live in Baltimore about 10 yards away from her front door of her office and about an hour and a half away from, from, from my grad school. I got a job with an absolutely wacky group of professors that had been kind of toiling in anonymity, writing all sorts of interesting pieces on the Soviet economy. And it was the kind of stuff that had an audience of one. It was the CIA and the, and the security services. But this wacky group of professors suddenly found out that, wow, the Soviet Union now is broken up. There's a massive market for the information that we have. Like, you know, what's the economy look like over there? And as an example, if British Petroleum wants to open filling stations in Moscow, what's demand like? What kind of cars do people drive? Where could we get sites? How do we get permits? What's the scale of the Soviet refine, the Russian refining industry? All these practical questions would come up and nobody knew the answers to these. So I went to work for them right out of graduate school. And within a year, they sent me to Moscow and they said, you're our man on the ground. A contact set me up in the equity research department a new Russian investment bank. And what is a new Russian investment bank in 1995, 1996? Well, it's generally something set up by an oligarch, something that has acquired state assets. And so they would bring in outside consultants or as set up an investment bank. I had no idea what that world was like. While drumming up business for this firm, I had a role within this Russian investment bank, helping them understand the assets that they had taken off the Russian state. I sat in uh, in a meeting and people are going around. It's eight o'clock in the morning and they're saying, well, let's talk about the markets overnight. And I thought, this is weird. Why, we, why we're going to have a meeting every day? I mean, this is madness. Sure enough, for the next 25 years, I had a meeting every day about, about this kind of stuff. When somebody needed to know something about, for example, a Russian energy company, I could tap into this wealth of knowledge back in DC and then present the ideas. And so I began to develop a, a degree of expertise around the Russian energy sector. I found myself meeting with investors. I didn't really know that I was an equity research analyst. Eventually that morphed into a career as an equity research analyst where I worked for a variety of Russian banks. I worked for a variety of Western banks, always trying to evaluate whether the big Russian companies worthy of investment, whether there were stories that somebody could actually believe in, or was this just a front for theft, you know, for, uh, for, for money laundering. But that was, that was sort of how I kind of, no point going back to Carlton, did I think about business or finance, equity research as a career. I didn't even know it existed. In a sense, my 
adult life, my career has unfolded as a series of logical progressions, or at least plausible progressions from decisions that have been taken prior. And decisions that have been taken prior were oftentimes easy because there was either a path that I expected to take going back to the very beginning from high school, it's college, from college, having been sort of introduced to the world of, you know, through an off-campus study program, you know, being abroad and travel, it was logical. I was going to go travel and work abroad for a year after Carleton. And then I had my interest in Russia and that led me to a different set of decisions. And there was always sort of a, a rationale to the decisions I was taking. So yes, I think there is, I think there's an element to my life, which has been quite logical even if the outcomes were completely unexpected. But now, now I have to, you know, in the latter stages of, of my career and, and now kind of post my finance career, I've moved against it. You know, I've in many ways had to manage the final 10 years. I, I left my, my role as a Russian equity analyst in 2016. I continued on in finance um, in, in a management role for a few years before I left in 2019. When I first went to Russia at the sort of the tail end of my first year there, but a couple of years out of Carleton, I'm in Russia and Paul Vanderspeck comes over to visit and he brings a friend of his who was a professional bodybuilder who was about 450 pounds. And that is not an exaggeration of pure muscle mass. I was, you know, in that sort of mode that it's very typical of young people when you have that first experience where you feel like I've got insight into something. I was completely full of myself in terms of like, let me show you Paul and Ken, his name was, the ways and customs, my new Russian friends. We were invited perpetually to dinners. And as an American, you know, there was an exceptional level of curiosity. And so it was really wonderful how you were treated, the kind of conversations you would have. Paul and Ken, they were invited places. And so one particular dinner, I said to them, been here for a year now. It's really, really important when a Russian host or hostess puts a bottle on the table, we got to finish it. We don't want to offend the host. And of course, the Russians see Ken, the bodybuilder, thinking, oh, let's see if he can drink. <laughs> I'd given them this advice and said, look, even if you don't feel like it for the sake of courtesy, you need to finish the bottle. Well, the reality is that that's just nonsense advice. So I entrapped these guys in this vicious cycle of bottle presented, bottle consumed, new bottle presented, new bottle consumed. After several hours, we were on the verge of just obliteration. And of course, it's spring. It's rainy season. There's potholes everywhere. Everything's muddy in Russia in, in, in the spring. And Ken, early 91, but he decided it was still sort of like, you know, Miami Vice time. He had white trousers and a white jacket. Walked out of this flat, tripped over the steps, and landed in a puddle. Not quite exactly Paul, but we'll call Paul as a Carlton classmate and accomplice in that, uh, in that story. Well, my wife and I, we married in 1993. She's really complimentary, whereas I tend to be more big picture. She's very precise. She has an engineering sort of precision about her. So in many ways, she's my real-time fact checker. You know, we've, uh, we've built a life in London now. We were in Russia in the mid-90s. Our first son was born in Moscow. Maybe some remember that in 1998, there was a financial crisis in Asia. The Russians defaulted on their debt, and we were working in finance in Russia, and the entire Russian economy collapsed. And so we were sent a lifeline with a firm before I was working for um, to London. And we thought we'd be in London for a year, possibly two years, and then eventually make our way back to Russia, since that was where my career was focused. But we settled here. I realized that London was actually quite an easy place from which to do 
Eastern Europe and Russian-related work, we decided to stay. Our second child in 2001, the kids have grown up in an English environment and assumed very naturally English identity, whereas obviously my wife and I have that otherness about it in this country. Understanding what I've become, who I've become as a, you know, as a middle-aged man now, that dynamic of having a Russian spouse as an American living in England with children that certainly appreciate part of their American identity. They certainly appreciate and love their Russian identity, but they're English. This has always interested me because I certainly realized you're always representing your country. You're always, you walk into a, a party, you meet somebody for the first time. There will generally be a, a discussion around some aspect of your Americanness or something American. And I took a real interest in sort of anti-Americanism. You're always sort of on guard for how you represent yourself and what the assumptions are the people that you're meeting are making. I want to spend my final stages of my working life and volunteer life, whether it be on a one-on-one -on -one basis, whether through charity work, whether through further, you know, kind of academic work, what are the things that need to be understood about how a country, how a people can go off the rails? And even those who aren't making decisions. What do we need to say about somebody? And, and, and honestly, I do think there's a fair parallel with, and I say we're in Germany in 1943. What do you say about somebody who personally doesn't bear a, a responsibility, but isn't willing to fully condemn what they see? And I think that's a, it's a really troubling place to be. It could be a friend that is, isn't willing to take the step towards full and unequivocal condemnation of something that I regard as utterly and purely morally repugnant. I want to find a way to get engagement with those people so that they can arrive. People need to be reasonable to solve problems. I feel like that's what at age 56 now, I feel like is the, the thing that's missing from the world that I want my kids to take over from. And, and certainly why sort of my immediate work is helping you know, Ukrainian families. Primarily it's Ukrainian women actually, because the men are all back in Ukraine fighting. And they, many of them have young children and they're traumatized and they need practical things. They need apartments and they need, they need to understand uh, how to study English here and they need to find jobs and need to understand how the system works. Thanks, Matt. It's great to hear about the things you've done in the last 35 years, the adventures you've had, and some of your great stories. It's also great to hear what you're doing now and what you're going to be doing in the future. Thanks for sharing with us.